Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, honey, I'm home. Oh, it's Thanksgiving. Inside a 1950s American family home, the kids are tearing up the house playing cowboys and Indians. And Dad is guffawing at the TV with a pipe in his mouth. And from the kitchen comes the sound of Mom preparing her signature dish. Yes, you guessed it, a green bean casserole. Mmm. Cans of green beans, mushroom soup, and fried onion slop out on top of each other. Oh, she starts to laugh. What a thrill to be here in the new age of processed food. Oh, this is the life, everyone. Okay, sorry about that. Welcome to Patented. It's Dallas here. It's a podcast about the history of inventions, but you knew that already. Uh, I'm sitting here on my, at my desk contemplating this can. It's a can of chickpeas. How do I know it's chickpeas? Well, it says chickpeas on the label, and there's some pictures of chickpeas. But when you think about it, crikey, this was such an alien concept back in the day. It took people a long time to accept it. I mean, why should you just trust a printed label with a picture on it when you're used to seeing and touching and squeezing and maybe sniffing your food before you buy it? It was the Americans, who else, that cracked the nuts and turned factory processed canned food from a niche product into a mass market product and laid the foundations of the processed food industry that we have today. This is the story of how canned food was invented and how it captured a place in our hearts. My guest today is the number one authority on all things canned food history. It's Anna Zadar, the author of the book Canned, The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry. Enjoy the show. Anna, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's really good to be here. We're talking about canned food. You know, to the untrained eye, people might think that's a bit of a niche topic. 
It would seem that way. But it's not. Here's what I read your book. And of course, obviously, you're an academic and you have that extraordinary knack of being able to turn something that sounds like a niche <laughs> subject into like, of course, you'd study canned food because canned food is a portal into all kinds of interesting social history and science and other kinds of history and all kinds of things. That's the claim, at least. Yes. It's really, really interesting to just very briefly, just very briefly, he said, just very briefly, tell us your entire resume. (laughs) Tell us where this came from, this interest in canned food before we jump in. Yes. I mean, I will say that, yes, of course, now after doing the work, think that the history of canned food is very important. And yet also when I sometimes hear she studies the history of canned food as a descriptor for myself, it's hard not to kind of laugh because it still feels a little silly. Certainly not something that I grew up specifically with an interest in canned food and no particular relationship to it. But when I started to be interested in both kind of contemporary conversations around food and where processed food has come from and why so much of at least U.S. food and certainly global food systems are now dominated by these packaged foods. As I started to be interested in that and then also started to be interested in just like the history of food more generally, it became very clear that where kind of industrialization of food began at its like earliest origin point had a whole lot to do with canned food. And that a lot of the way that we think of it today is somewhat outdated or, you know, less hip or modern than a lot of other kinds of processed foods, like that canned foods were originally the thing, you know, that a lot of the foundation that industry laid and the relationships that formed really built what we have today in terms of the food industry. It's so interesting. As you say, the country is such a symbol of so many things, everything from Andy Warhol's Campbell's soup cans and art through to class and culture and all kinds of things. It's funny, I've, I don't know if I've had a, I've been reading your book, I suddenly developed an old interest I'm sure I had in canned food because uh-huh. when I was at school, I was in the CCF, which is like the cadet forces. And I remember going on like a field trip, like a camping trip. And of course, you're given 24 hour ration packs and you're given canned food. I still have a can of canned food from the 1980s, which Amazing. I'm, one day I'm going to open it and just see if it's, if it's still fresh. But it's that thing of canned food lets you do things. It lets you explore, lets you go out of place. It lets you go out of the normal realms of being human, out of season, out of all kinds of things. And things like exploration and I've got some canned food from the International Space Station. It kind of empowers us as humans to go places where humans are not meant to go. And I think it seems to be the the origins of, of canned food seem to come from that exploration and things. I mean, that sort of magic of food preservation, you know, is much less accessible to people in the 21st century because we're so used to food out of time and out of place and all the many preservation technologies that have emerged in the century since. And yet one of the magical moments I try to kind of explore is what it would have felt like to 19th century consumers who really hadn't had a whole lot of methods to preserve food in that way and what it felt like to kind of have the freedom and unboundedness maybe that came with having foods out of season through the canning technology. We're slightly jumping ahead. I want to start actually by asking you some real basic questions. What is canning? (laughs) Yeah. That's question one. I mean, everyone knows what a tin can is, but let's just start with ask the expert, what is canning? Right. So 
the method of canning that's come to be known canning after the tin can really could be made in a wide variety of containers. And when it's first sort of invented by Nicolas Appert in France, it's called appertising. Tell us that name again. What was the name, Nicolas? Yes. So Nicolas, Nicolas Appert, A-P-P-E-R-T. Hmm. And the method is called appertising at first after his name. And so where we get the word not... appetite from? No, it can't be. <laughs> no, that would be, be a good connection. That would be, but I don't think we did. No, it's not. But meaning it's not about the container yet because he's using ceramic crocks, other materials. So the method isn't so much about the container as this phenomenon that when you heat a container that has food inside, it creates this kind of vacuum seal that creates an environment in which bacteria aren't developing and multiplying. Got it. So we're not into tin cans yet. We're into things like glass. Ceramic crocks with like cork lids. The airtight seal is important. Okay. You mentioned heating. So just Mm -hmm. can you describe that process? Sure. Yeah. So, you know, a pair gets kind of the credit for being the quote unquote inventor or father of the canning industry, but certainly he's building on sort of centuries of knowledge that usually lay with women in the home who are trying all kinds of methods, building on much wider knowledge about, you know, pickling or sugaring or Mm -hmm. making jellies. Mm -hmm. We've been quite known that there are lots of ways to preserve food by adding elements, salts, sugars, acids, smoking foods, things like that. So the kind of knowledge that he takes and standardizes is that when you pack food that doesn't have those kind of additives necessarily, doesn't have to need salt or sugar or vinegar, and you pack it into a container, and then you create some kind of airtight seal, right? So originally it's often a cork stopper with some kind of metal wire on top to hold it in place. And that when you place that container into a hot water bath, and boil the water, that heat creates a kind of vacuum that pulls the air out of the container. If anyone's done any like home canning, you hear that pop of the little lid that goes down when the seal has taken hold. And that that vacuum environment creates a space where bacteria don't thrive and develop such that the food remains, you know, that the usual bacteria that would cause spoilage or make food perishable are kind of held at bay. That's interesting. So there was that knowledge there that it's the air that makes food spoil. Right. But without knowledge of germ theory yet. I mean, it's later in the 1880s, right? Well, that's what I was wondering. It's to our, our man... A pair? Is a that... pair? Yes. <laughs> Tell me about a pair. Do we know much about him in terms of what his background was? Like, where did that science knowledge yeah, come from? I mean, from? he was a confectioner. So he had been making candies and other foods and a pair's method is in response to this call of Napoleon, come up with a better way to feed his army. And so he does have this sense that something in the space of the food preparation that he's been doing as part of his career might hold an answer. And again, drawing on the knowledge of many in the communities that he would have lived in just around the ways that women had traditionally worked with food to try to make it last. Got it. So we've got, we're not up to 10 cans yet, but we've got this new method, this new way of creating a, a vacuum seal, stopping the air getting in. When do we go from sort of that to like a tin can? And what, oh, well, actually, when did, was it called can? Like, where did the name can come from? I was thinking about this as well. I'm like, well, can, is, does it, is it just short for canister? Yes. And canister comes from a Greek word that I'm forgetting that's something about reeds bound together to create sort of a container. And so that word, you know, definitely isn't tied to metal initially. It's it's, right, a, okay. it's a container, a canister. But I think it is by the 18 teens, 20s, that some of a pair's 
he's French, some of his British colleagues sort of take the method, start trying to develop more standardized ways of doing it. Then the method moves to the United States by this second decade of the 1800s. And then the metal can starts to be more widely used. And of course, there's a whole history that's less about the food and about the material history of mining, of creating, you know, of finding the metal for the cans themselves, of using the solder, all of the kind of technical history of the container, which is also super interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you that because a lot of the success, presumably, of the can is the standardized size of it. The fact that they're all exactly the same size, which means they can be stacked, which means you can get a certain number in a particular volume, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Well, I'm just kind of wonder if there is there such a thing as in your research, have you found sort of can 1.0? Is there such mm. a thing as this is the very first tin can. No, I mean, I certainly haven't seen such a thing. I mean, it's very clear that by like the 1870s and 80s, there's the invention of what's called the sanitary can. And there's a company called Max Am's Sanitary Can Company that is moving from the kind of very piecemeal labor, as you said, lack of standardization. You know, the cans were made by individual kind of metal workers in the cannery where they would pound out the flat sheets, they would roll them up, they would solder on the lid. And it was all, you know, incredibly laborious and expensive because of that labor. And then the sanitary can is sort of the innovation that we still largely use where instead of soldering the lid on, there's kind of a double part seal where the the lid and the can itself pinch together and you can squeeze the metal so that the lid tightens onto the can. So that method is a huge innovation, both in terms of helping reduce spoilage and helping to standardize as you have machines that can stamp out standardized sizes of lids and can stamp the lids onto the cans. And what would have gone into these first metal tin yeah. cans? What are we talking about? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a pair experimented with a whole wide range of foods from kind of like single ingredients, like, you know, green beans to prepared foods like soups and others. Once it moves to the U.S. where Baltimore becomes kind of the hub of a lot of the early canning, there's a lot of seafood related canning going on. So oysters are a major, you know, a very popular widespread food and also, a, you know, major very near the shores in Baltimore area crop, or if you want to call it that, that can be kind of harvested, but that spoil very quickly. And they're kind of oysters inland are kind of a delicacy because you otherwise wouldn't have much of a way to try an oyster. So, you know, more wealthy people are able to import these canned foods to try these delicacies. Similarly, as, you know, different kinds of waves of immigration emerge, you have other kinds of delicacies like olives that can be canned for Italian immigrants or anyone who has kind of particular food tastes that are worth paying more for. Yeah. So here's a kind of moment in history where we're suddenly not bound by the seasons and bound by our geography. Suddenly these things start to dissolve. There's one a word that you use a lot in your book, uh -huh. which is opacity. Is uh -huh. that the right word? Yes. These, it suddenly becomes our relationship with food changes because so much of our connection with food up to this point in human history is being able to touch food and see it, squeeze it, check for ripeness. And suddenly, you know, even with a glass yeah. jar, you can see through it and you can right. see what the food is. But suddenly we're at this point where you can no longer see the food. We have no connection to it yeah. other than perhaps a label, printed label of words that go around it. Right. How fundamental, how profounder change is, is that? for our relationship with food. I'm glad you bring up the word and I'm glad it's a word that sticks with you as you read the book because it is at the center. I mean, I should have said too, one of the reasons 
I became interested in canned food is because it felt like a symbol or a metaphor for this broader relationship to our food system, right? That shift from transparency, both literally in terms of seeing our food, whether it's in a glass jar or picking a peach off the tree, but also that at the same time that canning is taking off in the US, there's a very distinct shift over the same period over the course of the 19th century, away from people growing their own food or acquiring food from their local communities or neighbors, to the rise of these kind of massive transportation revolutions, the railroad, the Erie Canal, all of the opportunities for centralizing food and then distributing it such that people are starting to lose any connection. So all of this kind of increasing opacity of the food system as a whole, that more and more people go from sort of knowing what they're trusting a person, right? They're trusting the farmer or their local grocer who they've known their whole life to now having to trust a whole system that we just don't really know where our food's coming from. If there's a problem, how to trace it back to its source. Yeah. How do we know that when we open a tin can, what's going to be inside is worth eating? I mean, we're putting it in our bodies. That's the trust thing. And I suppose, you know, we've had them for so long now, you just kind of assume that the tomatoes inside the can are going to be okay. But opacity is a good word because it's not invisible because there's information on the can. Right, right. And then as soon as you open the can, then it becomes visible. So opacity is, is a nice word. Actually, it reminded me of another tin can story. Flinders Petrie, oh. who was regarded as the first Egyptologist, mm-hmm. uh, lived this kind of weird Spartan life in Egypt as he was doing his investigations of the Great Pyramids and, and had loads and loads of tin cans in his little cave <laughs> where he lived, but they didn't have any labels on huh. And so Whoa. what he did was, and he had no way of opening them, he just picked up cans at random and would smash them against <laughs> the wall and would just hopefully they would be yeah. he didn't know whether they were cat food or prunes wow he would, anyway yeah i've done an activity like that with students before where i've removed labels from cans and brought mm. them into class and then we've talked about what it feels like how unmooring it is to lose that level of interpretation that comes through the label and how they all look exactly the same uh, you know on the outside without the label <laughs> Labels are important as we get in. We'll move into Andy Warhol in a moment. Just quickly, it's an old wives' tale, isn't it, that they didn't invent the can opener until fifty <laughs> years after they invented the can? Just can I just can we just clear this one up? No, I mean in some ways that's true. That you know there wasn't a clear sense of how you're supposed to open these cans. A lot of them, in part, I think because the building of them was so kind of individual. The opening of them too was kind of like. You'd use a knife or something else to puncture it and then take out the contents. And so the kind of rotary turning can opener that we have. Who invented that? That's a good question. I don't know. But... Just make up a name. Make up a name. <laughs> <laughs> Steve Brady. That's what I would do. Yeah, I think it would, don't, as long as it's not Thomas Bloody Edison. <laughs> no, I don't ever, think or it was. Leonardo de Bloody Vinci. <laughs> so. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists. And uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence... Slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Hold up. 
quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We talked at the beginning about the importance of canning and human exploration and the ability to preserve food, obviously, for long periods of time, which means you can travel. It means you can invade countries with ease. You can open up Northwest passages. You can go to the International Space Station. You write a, a lot of, at the beginning of your book about the Civil War in America and how important the Civil War was. Yeah. Like, can we sort of touch a little bit on that? I think that's a good example of sort of early canning and its origins in America. Yeah. And I think it also helpfully previews, you know, a couple of the major themes, which are, again, trust, how people get exposed to new tastes, and also the role of the federal government in helping promote and fund the early innovation in the industry. So during the Civil War, you both have one of the kind of early times in U.S. history where there's really widespread regional movement as soldiers are moving, you know, away from often small and quite localized lives in rural communities to other parts, uh, wherever battlefields are happening or sites that they're moving around. And in that process, they're being fed not by their families, but by the army, whatever that means. It, and it's quite different with the U.S. Army in the North and the Confederacy in the South. But there's this kind of exposure that different regional tastes get introduced, that if a canned food is what's being given to you as part of your daily rations, you're going to eat it because mm -hmm. you're hungry. It's not a question of should I buy this at the store or not. Instead, it's kind of this mass exposure, which then allows soldiers to come home and say, hey, I tried this canned condensed milk and it was really good. You know, mother or wife or whomever, can we have this too? And it, it very much speeds that sense of taking it in and trusting it. Well, I suppose then let's move into when it becomes much more widespread and much more standardized. And of course, you're, well, my mind always goes to the famous Campbell's soup can. And I suppose that's, we're into the sort of 1930s now. How influential was, was Campbell's and the famous soup can that became a great 1960s you know, art icon. Yeah, Campbell's is critical from the late 19th century in a couple ways. First, with its real, again, use of science, they sort of bring in 
scientific knowledge to sort of standardize their recipes, to draw on different kinds of tastes, to create standard like heating and pressure combinations for different foods, which helps reduce spoilage when you think through those things. And then their kind of huge innovation is their space in marketing and advertising. So Campbell's is an early leader in the use of radio to create jingles and tunes to kind of connect their product to a, a lifestyle. They create the Campbell's Kids, which are the little like cherubic children who are in a lot of their advertisements and who say the Mm-mm, good, you know, slogan, which has been used for a long time. I um, mean, they really invest heavily in all of these kind of marketing products, placing ads. It's interesting because Andy Warhol's whole philosophy of the Campbell Soup Can was in a way it's ordinariness. It was Andy Warhol commenting on mass production. It was him mass producing something that is mass produced. You know, the Brillo pad and the soup can are these sort of ubiquitous ordinariness. But I guess in the 1930s, they were probably anything but that. It was probably much right. more exciting and novel. And yeah. New. And those images are such a, a valuable moment in the story of like, when did they become so normal and behind the scenes and ubiquitous. I mean, it really had only been the last 50 years that that had happened. Yeah. I think actually the the Campbell's Soup Can, it it sort of segues us into the the famous green bean Mm -hmm. casserole as well, which is one of the success stories of canning. Soup was a component of that. Just tell us what, when I say (laughs) the green bean casserole, what am I talking Uh, about? Well, in the United States and, and certainly regionally in the United States, green bean casserole is sort of considered a classic Thanksgiving dish in particular, which is its own very interesting history mm. in terms of holidays and how foods get tied. And so it's really you take two cans of canned green beans, combine them with a can of Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, which is this condensed If you were making an actual soup, you would add milk or water to loosen it. So it's kind of a very thick, congealed Mm -hmm. substance. Mix those together and then sprinkle on top, critically, canned French's fried onions, which are these little crispy brown bits that, you know, taste more like oil than onion. And then bake the whole thing together. And it creates this casserole that is both like widely loved and widely reviled, I would say, in the U.S. Well, it's Thanksgiving is coming. I'm going to try this. I'll send you the recipe. There's lots of ways to doctor (laughs) it up. And I'd actually, I'd never heard, I've had a couple of Thanksgivings in in America and that one has eluded me. (laughs) It's part of my husband's family tradition. So I don't love it, but it's become part of ours because he grew up with it and he, you know, thinks it's delicious. Okay. So green, this green bean casserole, it seems to sort of tie in with the sort of convenience and the obsession with convenience of the 1950s and, and you know, the liberation of women in the kitchen. Suddenly you've got convenience and things are quick and easy and TV dinners and all that kind of stuff that I think about, particularly in America. Yeah. So, yeah, the green bean casserole in the 1950s helps really capture the kind of height of the arc of canned food as I talk about it. And the subtitle is The Rise and Fall of Consumer Confidence in the American Food Industry and this kind of The rise peaks here in the 1950s where a lot of the canning technology that has been heightened and refined in World War II now needs a new audience. And so the food industry really wants housewives and those who are buying food to buy more processed foods of all kinds. And so the green bean casserole, for example, is one of these recipes created by Campbell's, created by a home economist named Dorcas Riley in the Campbell's test kitchen to include on the backs of the label of the can, to include in these little recipe books that the companies release for free to create tastes for certain kinds of cooking. And yeah, there's this real desire by the industry to convince women that they're busy, that they don't have enough time, that they need shortcuts, that they need to use processed foods, whether or not that's always true. And some women take to it quickly. 
Others really see this as an imposition on their sense of their role as showing love, caretaking through cooking. And so the kind of green bean casserole, the French's fried onions here actually become really critical because there's this push to add these components to these processed food recipes that give women a sense of like glamorizing or adding their own touch. And so the sprinkling on the top of these little also canned onions is this way to feel like you're adding yourself to it. And that is... And you're involved in the process. They still do that. Marketers still do that. You know, you have to add your own thing or do your own bit of the method in order to feel engaged with it. Yeah. And it's this broader use of um, like psycho- consumer psychologists that the industries begin to to use to say, well, how do we you know, feed on people's insecurities to sell them these food products? <laughs> um, and the green bean casserole really embodies this like, you know, and in the Cold War context, the US is really holding up women and their kitchen as this height of domesticity that's, you know, this beautiful life that one can have through American capitalism. And that we dream of that life dish. Yeah, the dish (laughs) and the, you know, processed foods are part of that story of the way Mm. that we can show how quick and easy and convenient and delicious American food is. And women don't have to sully their clothing in the process. They can continue to cook and be beautiful. Here in the UK, we had a little during Brexit times, couple of years ago there was a big hoo-ha about american canned chicken huh really like horrifically jellified chlorinated <laughs> chicken i think it was canned chicken but maybe uh-huh. maybe I'm dr- but there's all kinds of terrible things in cans as well i think there's an entire christmas dinner in <laughs> exactly like turkey brussels like everything the whole I thing i definitely like had friends layers. send me you know like lists of terrible canned hamburger i think was something yeah what's the wor- what's the craziest thing in a can i mean i feel like all the kinds of meat that you can can if, that people would not normally eat so there's a little local shop here with canned possum meat um, and other things that it's like well you might as well try it put it in a can and see see who might yeah, want this it love it won't spoil anyway so yum yep. <laughs> yeah yeah well, there you go. There is a nostalgia for these things as well. I think as well yes. as like spam, not the <laughs> internet spam, but the yes, original meat-based meat spam is the other. I, I mean, I ate a lot of spam as a kid. It was it was easy and you could just slice bits off. And yeah. I really liked spam. <laughs> well, in many parts of the world, spam is still, you know, widely popular canned food. And it is partly because of the success of canning by World War II era when, you know, speaking of regional exchange during the Civil War, of course, that becomes a global exchange around foods and soldiers' movements by World War I and World War II. And by World War II, canning is in this position to really monopolize on that global movement. And spam is really one of the winners in terms of canned food that emerges from the the legacy of World War II. Spam fritters are a thing of my childhood. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> Interesting. Like fried yeah. in the in the pan? Yeah, like deep fried in, in like batter, along with a deep fried Mars bar. I, have, I admit I've never eaten Spam, and I feel like don't I ever. have to. But <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't ever eat Spam. You, honestly, you don't need to. It's funny that as well, there's nostalgia, I think, connected to canned food. It kind of does transcend class, I think, a little bit. I mean, we can be quite snobby about canned food. I mean gastronauts and and foodie types and hipsters probably poo-poo canned food but hey listen if you're making nice food i always reach for a can of tomatoes you just canned tomatoes Mm -hmm. why would you not use canned tomatoes yeah right i mean a lot of the class distinctions in the present as i understand them is this interesting division between kind of canned foods as Mm. ingredients versus canned foods as standalone meals right and so if you're opening a, a can of tomatoes to add to a pasta dish that you're making, well, sure, that's a good use. That's a, you know, upper class way of doing it. And then 
but opening, you know, a can of chili or soup or whatever it is and pouring it into a bowl that that has different it's funny how these things change as well our relationships with food and our associations with them particularly class i mean during the pandemic when food was scarce because everyone was doing runs on the all all that sort of hipster oh yeah i only organic food from the mark from the farmer's market all that went out the bloody window as we were sort of rushing to buy canned food and tins of tomatoes Yeah. yeah what feels stable and long-lasting and yeah tell us a little bit about the future of canning i mean is it forever going to have a place as we expand into the cosmos will we be taking um (laughs) campbell's soup with us i guess we must i think so i mean that's i think the thing about it is as with so many kind of like original products in different spaces they easily get kind of pushed to the side when we think about trends and what feels the most appealing. And that is of great concern to the canning mm. industry. Campbell's I write about in my last chapter. It was what it was and is, I think, very concerned about the sense of like dating themselves. You know, like if a journalist says in the, that I quote in the last chapter, you know, if you're still eating grilled cheese and canned tomato soup for lunch, you probably grew up using a typewriter. And so Campbell's takes on all kinds of efforts to kind of modernize their products, whether it's like you know, plastic pouches that are microwavable to new flavors that kind of take on more ethnic and global resonances and all these things to try to defend their position. At the same time, as you mentioned with the pandemic, you know, when there's a sense of crisis and urgency, cans still have, I mean, the technology itself still has this kind of amazing resilience and staying power. And you don't need a freezer to maintain the food and you don't need, you know, so many things that kind of other newer modes of food require other inputs. Cans can literally be put in your storm shelter and left there for years, and it's still going to keep you alive if needed. And so I do think that the kind of remembering how critical in times of need, just having access to non-perishable foods, you know, perishability is an enormous, powerful force in our world when it comes to food and ability to create non-perishable foods, I think is an enormous power and an easily overlooked one in modern nations that have access to all these food technologies. Well, you're absolutely right. And maybe we've become too decadent with our farmers markets and too, you know, and actually, well, as we hurtle into World War Three, as we seem to be hurtling, I, I shall think fondly of my little can from 1981. <laughs> it's true. From CCF. It's true. You still have it that. for safety. I have it. I'm, I'm amazed that no one's really done. Well, actually, I think maybe Heston Blumenthal or some of these kind of well-known chefs will have done proper Michelin star food in a can. Well, I was going to say, yeah. I mean, I think cans in general have this kind of other less... bit hipster now. But then, but yeah, like tinned fish and tinned things and oil. Like Mm. we have a local little wine wine shop and it has, you know, a whole wall of these fancy imported tinned foods. And so many Mm. people are like, oh, I got a few of those for my birthday. And I think Mm. it's funny because it, it tends to feel like... I mean, it's about what's inside, but it also feels like it's about the marketing and the sense of <laughs> how it's opened and all these things. Goodness me, honestly, opening a can of worms, <laughs> reading your book, Canned. It's absolutely a terrific book. And again, it's Thank that you. thing of a can is so ordinary and yet you open it like your book and you are exposed to so many ideas, ideas, histories and science and people and just absolutely terrific. So, Anna, I want to say a huge thank you for writing it. I know you wrote it a couple of years ago. Very briefly, what are you working on now? Yeah, so some of what I mentioned, the spam and the canned uh, green bean casserole comes less from the book Canned than from a book I have coming out in February called U.S. History in 15 Foods. So it tells kind of the entire scope of U.S. history from pre-colonization to the present through the lens of kind of 
15 foods that unpack certain stories. So favorite, favorite one of those 15. Quickly. Oh, wow. I really love the chapter on Jello, um, which when I say I have a chapter on Jello, everyone says, oh, that must be the 1950s, but it's actually my turn of the 20th century food because oh, Jello right. is a much earlier product and kind of an amazing t- story that both brings together the rise of the meatpacking industry and gelatin as this byproduct of meatpacking and the displacement of native peoples and bison from the West for the creation of the cattle industry. And then the marketing of this kind of fast and quick product that you can have without dyspepsia and and indigestion. And just this kind of amazing linking of production and consumption through this food that we think of as, you know, fairly marginal. And yet, as with the can itself, when you look deeper, kind of opens up an entire world. Oh, I mean, come back on the show and talk to us about the invention of Jello and other, and other things. Uh, Anna, absolutely delightful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time and uh, congratulations on the book and further books. That's it. Thanks very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that. You can now go and open a can of beans and throw them on some toast or whatever. Open a can of, don't they have those cans of complete Christmas dinner? Uh, maybe you've got one in the back of your cupboard let us know if you do uh, how it tastes don't forget to give us a rating and a review i hate asking for you for that because all human activity now has been reduced to leaving feedback whatever you do wherever you are you've got to press a button or leave feedback or get a text or get an email we'd appreciate your feedback however if you can't beat them join them it would help us out a lot and we'd appreciate it and also we just love hearing from you so do get in touch and as ever get in touch with your ideas next time another big one it's batteries crikey where do we even start with that looking forward to it see you next time while i still have you very briefly if you fancy getting all of the history hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch. Download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes, or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout you get 50% off your first three months that's patented for 50% off your first three months and if you're an apple listener you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the apple app